You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Texas in rolling blackouts. What's the message for the market? Reddit rebel deep effing value on the hill. Why should we care? And Treasury selling off. Are they headed to 150? All that and a lot more coming right up with Tyler Neville. Tyler, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Ed. Always good to be here. So two, two things. One is I know that you have a new newsletter that you write. And I know that you're in Texas uh, where they have the rolling blackout. So uh, let's start with those two things. Tell me about the newsletter and then tell me what's going on down there. Yeah, so basically the newsletter is just everything macro uh, and crypto combined. So we're, we're, we're seeing a lot of those two worlds combined. And what we want to do is kind of teach the legacy macro world about crypto and vice versa, right? Because uh, a lot of the a lot of the things kind of react to the same factors. So for, that's first off. Second off, living in Austin in this frozen tundra is just uh, a real surreal experience um, compared to any other part of the country I've lived in. Uh, when I lived in Boston, you take for granted all the infrastructure you have for like you know snow plows, shoveling, salt, and down here there's not one of those for two thousand miles. So everything stops like grocery stores were closed you can't get on the roads you can't like go anywhere the 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 entire like pavement outside is just a sheet of ice to the point where like i can't even walk outside with my kids so that is why we're seeing a lot of the supply chain disruptions in in stuff like oil right now yeah uh, and you know i want to get to that but uh, do you think that this whole phenomena is i mean they never get this kind of weather anyway do you think that it's a bad planning on Texas part. Everyone's really talking about it from the perspective of how could they be so vulnerable? In Alaska, they have a power grid that works. You know, in Massachusetts, obviously, they have one that works too. Yeah, this is like a tail risk thing. I don't think you can blame the, uh, <laughs> the politicians or any of the infrastructure things. Like, my house wasn't built for cold weather. Like, in in the Northeast, your house is built for cold weather where your pipes don't freeze. There's an external uh, pipe system for the outside and an internal one here. We don't have that. The insulation is completely different. So, you know, a lot of that stuff is just like it's it's basically a tropical, you know, weather here all the time. So it's the coldest weather since I think 1989. So you're, how do you protect for tail risk is like, you're going to lose money every single year trying to do that as a politician. It's not going to be economical. So I think everyone's just kind of um, doing the best they can, helping each other and, you know, getting through this time. So you pointed out the markets, I mean, commodity markets, oil markets, all of them are going up. But what's the message for the markets about what's going on down there? I think it's it's interesting. Like the Permian, I think lost three million barrels a day. And if you look at like U.S. oil production, 
it just went from say 13 million barrels a day to 7.5 million barrels per day, which is obviously causing like a little supply shock here uh, in the US. But the follow on is that leads to higher inflation, which is partly probably why you're seeing treasury yields rise along with the, the increased supply because of the deficit blowing out. So it's, it's kind of a funny daisy chain of events that's pretty concerning, I'd, I'd say. And also, it, it might lead to basically a bigger secular change in inflation here. Right. Yeah. And we're going to get into the whole Treasury part of the thing. But, uh, you know, there when you talk about daisy chains, I was thinking about a chart that you showed me uh, with uh, U.S. equities and commodities. Uh, it almost looks like they're going up together. What's going on with that chart? Well, uh, this is the lumber chart, and that's the lumber and the home builder ETF. So lumber obviously like is skyrocketing. The home supply is at record lows. Mortgage rates are at like record lows. So you have a, you have a lot of equity built up in your house as mortgage rates fall, and you also have this dearth of supply in lumber. So home builders are, are kind of making out, but this is all more more inflationary pressure coming um along along with the oil oil, oil shock here so so th- what about the correlation between us equities and uh and lumber i mean they seem like they're going up at the same time yeah i i think that's happening basically because the fed is adding massive liquidity to the market um but there are some divergences there that that are the rumblings below the surface as as treasury yields rise, I think we are getting into this weird uh, part of the market where it could cause like a tumble in, in the fixed income market right here. But we'll talk about that in, in a few. Right, definitely. So um, one one thing you were talking about is you said U.S. production went from like 13 mil to 7 mil a day. Uh, it used to be that the Saudis were the swing producer now everyone's talking about the U.S. being a swing producer. What does that mean, just from uh, just a macro perspective? Now that you have these shale guys basically as the ones that are the toggle for the global supply chains and, and obviously American supply chains. Yeah, I, I'm not an energy specialist by any means, but um, it's definitely a, a weird divergence to see there, and you know. One of the weird things I haven't really wrapped my head around is as the, the price of oil rises here and U.S. yields rise and theoretically high yield yields should rise as well. But a lot of those high yield companies are now oil suppliers, so they might get more debt uh, issuance in this in this backdrop as oil actually rises. So we could see you know production rise again and then oil roll over commensurately, but. Cool. That's a wait and see game. Yeah, that is interesting. I mean, for me, the biggest nexus here between what's happening in the oil market is between, you know, the rolling blackouts to oil, then to interest rates that you're talking about. You already talked about treasuries, uh, inflation. You talked about high yield versus treasuries, all of that mix. Why don't we get to that? Because, I mean, the backdrop is that we were at 90 basis points early January. Now we're at like 130 basis points on the 10 year. A lot of people are talking about uh, the break-evens going way up uh, for tips. And the question is, is how much further can these things go up? What's what's behind it? What are you seeing? Uh, what's the macro picture that you're painting uh, of what's happening right now? 
Yeah, so one of the the brilliant charts that I saw on Twitter um, from this one guy, I give you credit, I kind of forgot your name, but uh, it's it juxtaposes the high yield uh, implied vol versus the TLT implied vol. And if, if you look at this chart, uh, it's one month implied vol, and you're seeing that TLT is now popping a little bit, the volatility, which means rates are rising, right? And the ratio between the two shows that's the bottom half of the chart. That shows that high yield is still bid up, meaning high yield rates are still pretty low, uh, which we, we all know that, that story. And Jack uh, owes me uh, for uh, calling that the yields keep going lower. But now we're seeing the uh, implied vol of treasuries rise. And I think it's a delayed reaction in the high yield market where they'll probably rise soon commensurately because we're already at pretty much lows between those two ratios. Yeah. And I mean, when if we have rates in the U.S. Treasuries rising, say uh, Treasuries now maybe going up to the top of the range between 1 and 150, up to 150, the spreads are incredibly low, uh, which is why uh, they were going down to begin with for the rates in the high yield. You would think that actually spreads would reverse. So it's a double whammy. Not only are treasury yields going up, but then spreads are widening together as well. Yeah. I mean, spreads have really gotten super tight. And theoretically, you'd think, you know, with the illiquidity of, of high yield in general, those will start blowing out here a little bit. And I, th I think that's why you're seeing some de-risking in, you know, the growth names in the equity market is people are paying attention to it. Um, but the demand is still there. You know, the pensions are still massively unfunded. These deals are getting like, you know, majorly oversubscribed in the high yield market, which shows like they're still trying to make up that gap. But there are rumblings like, you know, the, their real rates are no longer falling anymore. It's becoming less negative, which is a concern that deflation might be arising again. And commensurately, the Fed will have to step in at some point. My guess is they will. And they'll probably institute yield curve control, and then we'll have, you know, negative real rates ad infinitum, like uh, Luke Groman talks about. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Right. Yeah. I mean, that was my next question for you about well, how this uh, unravels. I mean, because basically the way I'm looking at it is I, there was a quote uh, that I came across that uh, from 2007 that people remember. You know, I think it was Chuck Prince, who was the CEO of Citigroup. He was saying, you know, while the music's playing, uh, you got to dance and we're still dancing. And they hauled him in front of uh, Congress, and they were like, what are you talking about? Why are you saying stuff like that? I mean, that's so ridiculous. Uh, and he was saying, wait a minute, hold on. The reason I said that is because the regulators, um, I was talking about the leveraged loan market, and the, the, the rates were out of control. And, you know, it's not for me. We have, to, we have to dance. We have to actually, you know, play in that market as a bank if we want to, uh, you know, be in that market. It's for you the regulators to make things happen. Uh, and it seems like we're back there again, uh, 13 years later, that that's where we are with those yields so incredibly low. 
Yeah, and it's I think the imbalances are are way bigger this time, which is super scary. And and one of the things I want to mention, uh, and I, I wrote it in my note tonight, which is I think Bitcoin is actually sniffing out the Fed uh, yield curve control before anything else. Like we saw just the past month, Tesla has fallen five percent, and Bitcoin's gone up. I think something like forty percent just in the past month, and. They might even be front running like the crypto market is essentially super macro market, right? They're super risk forward, but they pay attention to all the macro stuff. And crypto is is really kind of front running all this stuff at this point. And if they know that yield curve control is coming, you're going to see that massive rotation um, into those highly inflationary uh, assets. And so what, 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 how far, I mean, because when we think about real interest rates being negative, uh, basically that's uh, the Fed, uh, you know, stomping on the market and saying, look, you know, we want to make it easy for debtors. How far are they let, willing to let real interest rates rise? Is, is the question how far they're willing to let it rise? Or is the question what needs to break in markets before the Fed uh, intervenes? Yeah. I think it's probably the real rates question because if they actually like you can you can have a real bad cascading effect with how much money is in passive investment at this point in in the equity market could theoretically even go no bit that's how bad the imbalances are so like I'd imagine they step in although the, what's what's funny is that Powell remains so adamant about you know his his mission but there's rumblings in, internally about you know, for other Fed members that, hey, we're creating some major problems here. But I think it's too late. Like, it's it's already Ponzi finance. Yeah. And, you know, when you talk about uh, the you were talking about the float and passive, I was thinking to myself about the last uh, story that's on our radar for today, which is uh, GameStop. You know, so deep effing value, a.k.a. Roaring Kitty. Uh, he was in front of uh, Congress. Uh, you know, he's being sued in, in some other venues, et cetera. Uh, you, the story that people are talking about is one of, uh, you know, uh, how could you put it, uh, David and Goliath kind of thing. Uh, I mean, how, how do you break apart this story in in sort of a macro context? Um, my macro context is it's so funny watching this because they are all, you know, self-aggrandizing and, and virtue signaling about how they are doing the greatest thing for market structure, which is half true. Like, you know, it's, it's like taking an antibiotic. They've closed spreads. They've made them really, really small. But they didn't mention once about Vanguard or, or BlackRock and how that's incentivized them to lower fees to scale even more. And what happens, speaking of side effects, when you scale uh, passive investment is due diligence of stocks goes out the door and you start allocating money based off models instead of like business decisions and, and fundamentals. And we're already way past that, you know, like hedge funds are getting taken to the cleaners. The long short model is basically toast. If, if Jay Powell just keeps putting the pedal to the metal, like how do you short anything in this setting? So my, my point being is this whole charade on, on, on Capitol Hill is just people pointing fingers, trying to find the problem, but the problem is not even there. It's it's 
His name is Mortimer Buckley, and he's the CEO of Vanguard. And no one, no, no one even knows the guy's name. That's how funny it is. And they can strip the float. And then I was like thinking that. trading places when you said Mortimer. Yeah, <laughs> Tim Buckley is the guy's name. But like, it's so it's hilarious that you know you get Ken Griffin. Everyone knows Ken Griffin, you know, but no one knows the CEO of Vanguard. It's just it's a hilarious, you know situation but what what happens is they can constrict the float and then if you're short as a long short fund it takes less and less stock to move it so that's what you know deep effing value figured out buying long out of the money call options and it's a market structure thing here's the other thing that the long short hedge funds have a real problem with is portfolio managers are starting to understand the liquidity a little bit better but like, say a stock trades a million shares a day, you should just immediately take that million shares that trades and just X out half of it. Because that's 500,000 shares you can't even access because that's high frequency, just flipping it back and forth, right? So you really have 500,000 shares to deal with. So if you have a high short interest, a low float, and the liquidity at the microstructure level is that small, and you wouldn't know this as a retail investor because you'll buy and sell 100 shares. But if you have to buy and sell a million shares, that's where the Melvin Capitals of the world get absolutely like annihilated because it, it, it's, it's really, it's just, it's annihilating short sellers. It's annihilating long short funds. And who's the winner in all this? The vanguards and the Black Rocks of the world. Very interesting. Hey, let me see if I can pick this apart because I think this is an important point. So basically, you're saying uh, we're talking David and Goliath on, on Capitol Hill, and people, but really, actually, that's not what this is all about. This is all about market structure on some level. That first and foremost, uh, floats as it is anyway are lower than they used to be uh, uh, to begin with. Second, you add in high frequency trading on top of that, you're cutting that float in half. Third, you know, many of the fund, many of the uh, of the flows are from passive investing guys who are not even doing due diligence because you know they're getting the money in. They got it allocated to the to uh, the sh the shares within the index that they're they're passively tied to. So mm -hmm. then, uh, that's the situation that deep effing value comes into, and he's able to uh, game the system uh, based upon that. Uh, but guys like Melvin Capital, who have tons of money, how are they supposed to actually make any money unless they leverage up into risky situations like this, where they're so big that they risk uh, not being able to exit their position very easily? I mean, that's why they got a 50% loss, because they were so big relative to the float. Yeah. And their problem probably wouldn't have existed if if it was actually active managers as holders, because there's it, it, what happens in that the passive thing. Mike Green and Carson Block talk about it all the time. Is passive won't sell until it has an outflow. So just take all that you know, Fidelity, BlackRock, and uh, Vanguard who held it. You know they just are holding it over here, and you're trading a smaller and smaller piece of of the outstanding value of the company. So price is a liar. Price is an equilibrium of liquidity, right? Like the old John Burbick saying. And they just skyrocketed up. But I think that happens at the end of cycles is there's winners and there's losers. 
and every the winners never stop themselves. They have to grow ad infinitum, like forever. That's like the whole ego thing is like, I need to grow, 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 grow. And at some point, I think we're past the state of like trying to unwind this. Um, because who all the active managers are, who's going to step in front of passive outflows if they ever come? You know, it's indiscriminate selling. Right. And, and you're annihilating, like, look, Andrew left just tapped out of short selling. That is a, a sign to me that like something, well, this guy was one of the best in the business for a lot of years and, and now he can't short anything. But I think the real culprit, we're watching like the side effect on, on the, the Capitol Hill hearings right now. But the passive is the big elephant in the room. And as long as Jay Powell stands beside it, he's going to ruin free markets. Like he probably already has in all honesty. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. So my question is, is how does this unravel if it does? I mean, because basically, I mean, what you're saying is, is, is that on the way up, passive is just throwing the money in there. Uh, that's bidding up the shares. Uh, there's, there's no, it's indiscriminate. But then obviously when there's an air pocket and people start pulling their money out, then it's the exact same thing. There's no bid on the other side, especially because, you know, uh, no one's going to be on that no one's there anyway. People like the short sellers aren't there to buy up the shares anymore. Um, mm. And and then uh, we saw that that play out to thirty percent down. But then uh, the Fed stepped in. They said, you know, we'll buy uh, corporate bonds. We'll buy high yield. Maybe next time they'll step in and say, hey, we'll buy equities as well. We'll we'll buy e we'll buy ETFs. Yeah, like Japan did, right? And if that happens, I think Bitcoin goes to, you know, a million like Ralph says, because everyone at that point will be like, all right, cat's out of the bag. This is really a Ponzi scheme. And uh, I'm just going to go over here and play in this little pocket of like, at least it's a little more equitable over here. I think that's really what's going on. And the crypto people know it. There are, it's already a foregone conclusion in their mind. They still have to pay attention to see if there's a policy mistake, because if if somehow that little contingent at the Fed tells Jay Powell, you're causing way too much inequality and the social ramifications are going to be so bad, you're better off tightening. I think that's what crypto people really have to be um, pay attention to, because if those real rates rise, everything gets taken to the cleaners. And I just don't think they'll do that with unfunded pensions still like, you know, they want to make this boom zoom to the moon uh, and, and have SPAC fever go on forever. But, you know, you're just incentivized sociopaths at that point. And I think that's the state we're at. Like when capital is so easy to come by, people make up stories. Look at this, this thing, Dan David from Wolfpack Research, Ehang, is a straight up fraud. And it went down like 70%. And the only reason that worked, that short worked, was because it was all actively held. So the short sellers are going to just slowly go off and pick off all the active management pockets in the market. It's usually probably value stocks and short short those things. And it, 
that bubble of passive is going to grow bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. So one of the things that I was expecting you to talk about when we were thinking about GameStop was this whole intergenerational thing, because that was a, uh, that was an undercurrent that you saw there. Uh, I don't, I didn't watch all the Capitol Hill stuff, so I don't know how much that was on display, but this whole sort of like, you know, not only is it the man that we're sticking it to, but there's this sense that, uh, you know, boomers, uh, they made out like bandits and, you know, the millennials, they're getting stuck with the, with the, the bag. Uh, talk to me about that. Uh, how, how, how do you see that in the whole GameStop thing? Yeah, there's there's a great chart, you know, I showed the other day, um, which was boomers own the majority of, of assets, right? It's no, and, and Gen Xers own like a tiny bit more and then millennials own like nothing. And it's it's really the same thing on the microstructure level as it is on the macro level where boomers have cornered the market in assets and leverage. And if rates rise, you know, that's when it all blows up. But they what what happens at the end of cycles? Everyone's like, what happens when boomers sell? What happens when boomers sell? But wouldn't you expect a crazy euphoria when the float is this big? Like the the incremental dollar causes an asymmetric eighteen times move in market cap. You would you would think there was going to be a blow off top, and then retail would lever up and chase it, right? We're we're kind of seeing that now, and I never thought it would get to like a Weimar level, but now I'm like. Yeah, we're, we're getting there. Like, it's, it's kind of crazy when you look at the amount of debt and the narrative has changed too. If you look, if, you, if you're reading all these articles, people now know, okay, K-shaped recovery, this is completely unfair. I don't know how we change this. And they just keep doing the same thing. And there's this underlying contingent of people, if, you, if you're paying attention, they're like, they now get why crypto is a thing. And... I, I, I'm really, and if you even go dig deeper, there's this guy, Preston Pish, who said something mind-blowing. He's like, if you actually look at the interest rates you can get in, in crypto by essentially like arbing, buying spot and selling the futures, it's like an easy, riskless 15, 20%. And he goes, what happens if, what if that is actually the real market interest rate of where things should be at? And it's a really fascinating thought experiment because the Fed has basically stomped out all risk here, but in this completely free market over here with finite supply and, and increasing demand, you can manufacture like real yield there. And I think that's just the giant arb. And, and who does it best? Michael Saylor. He issues debt to unfunded pensions at 0% rates and then buys something with such finite supply that has a genuine yield with incremental dollars moving in. He's, he's a 21st century bank issuing debt to unfunded pensions and buying something that's highly inflationary sensitive. I mean, that's, that's brilliant. And I think a lot of people are going to tag onto this eventually. And, and that's, this is where it actually undermines the US dollar at some point if people do this you know, forever. But um, we'll, we'll see. This next decision by the Fed is the biggest decision ever. It really is. And which one? Like what, uh, which meeting are you thinking about? It's either like it, I, I don't, the next time they have a meeting, I don't know the exact date, but it's either yield curve control. And you just say, we're going to 
just make inflation happen and inflate away the debts, or you say we have a free market. And I think they're not going to choose a free market. It's not a free market. Everybody, like it's, it's so obvious it's not a free market at this point. There's pockets of little capitalism happening, but you know, for the most part, it's not a free market. So this next one will, will be, are we going to be China? Or are we going to be America? And I think they're going to choose China. So no, uh, you know, let me unpack this for one second. I'll, let me, I'll play devil's advocate. So yeah. uh, we went to war against the, uh, the Nazis and the Japanese and the uh, Italians uh, won, but there was a huge amount of debt associated with that. And then there was also the, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, the demobilization. The Fed, that's when they first came in and they did yield control. They, they said, that's it. You know, we're capping rates at that point. No one batted an eye back then. Uh, everyone accepted it for what it was, and no bad things happened. We had the 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 baby boom. That's when the baby boomers were born. Why yeah, can't yeah. we go back? Isn't it possible that that's the future uh, for America? It's going back to another boom uh, like we had then. It's conceivable, and I think you have to incentivize the entrepreneurs and the real the real people and, and you have that's why I meant you have pockets of capitalism because that's happening certain places and there there is real innovation but on on the whole growth is stagnating in, in my opinion and that's why you see basically everyone is forced into at the end of the cycle the last growing things and it, it creates those bubble-like, herd-like mentalities. Um, but yeah, I think we we could. You know, if 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 the entrepreneurs are that good and the money flows to to the venture guys, but we'll see. They got to come up with something pretty good. With a uh, you had the baby boom. Now we have a baby. The baby boomers are rolling over, right? So we'll, we'll see. That's the trillion dollar question. Yeah, and it's literally the trillion dollar question because that's what all the SPACs are all about. Basically, uh, we'll see what you know what they come up with. I'm not that hopeful either, so I, I'm with you there. Yeah, I mean, there's there's great things happening, and then there's bad things happening. I take take it with a grain of salt. I know we get extreme here on Real Vision because it's fun to to think about, but you know, this next big F Fed meeting is going to be a, a doozy. So look forward to it. Well, good, Tyler. Thanks for putting those three uh, issues in perspective. I uh, hope that uh, things get better down there in Texas for you and appreciate you coming back on. Appreciate it. Thanks. Uh, I didn't shower today, so that's why I got the backwards hat on. No water. <laughs> good luck, man. <laughs> See you, Ed. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.